this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. This is the last uh, podcast of, of 2022. It's been quite a year, not a great year. Um, you know, kind of, sort of, sort of in the way that it, that people have said every year since uh, 2016. But somehow, I don't know. There, there's, I, I was, I was, I don't have it right in the right in the front of my mind right now. But I was, I was going through a few days ago that you know a, a lot of kind of rough stuff happened in 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 2022, and yet uh, for some of us, it seemed to kind of end on a relative high note. Um, some of that, you know, for, for Democrats, they, they got sort of a pleasant surprise out of the, uh, out of the election. Um, we just had, uh, the conclusion of the January 6th committee's work. They finally, they had that one late night where, you know, it's kind of, are we going to, are we going to release the report tonight? It was kind of, you know, this was, this was a multi hundred pages document. So if you're doing, um, if you're doing substantive changes to the last minute, you want to kind of, you don't necessarily want to kind of, you know, hit, you know, add a bit of text and hit send or whatever. But in any case, they sent that out. So that happens. So we, we, we have that. And uh, we're ending the year with kind of a certain level of, of comic relief in, in the person of this guy, George Santos, who was elected to this district kind of on the, on the um, outer edge of New York City, uh, uh, part of Queens and going into, into Long Island, sort of a fairly affluent uh, district, kind of a you know, Democratic-leaning swing district uh, out there. And uh, his whole, as, you've, as I'm sure you've seen at this point, his whole biography is sort of uh, collapsed, and that is a kind of an ongoing thing. And then you have Carrie Lake, uh, the relevant judges have have. I mean, she lost almost two months ago. This is a very Trump era kind of thing. I mean, she lost, and it wasn't even that close, really. Um, uh, closer than 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 that other guy uh, whose name whose name escapes me at the moment. Mark Fincham. No, not him. You know, the senator, the guy Mark Kelly beat. Oh, Blake Masters. Yeah, Blake Masters. But in any case, uh, what I guess is the sort of the final legal challenge is, is done. So we're going to talk about all that kind of stuff. Um, I want to remind you that, remember, the Josh Marshall podcast brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off your order if you use the promo code TPM, and that's at Grady'sColdBrew.com. So give that a try. So uh, co-host Kate Riga, what are, what, what's, what's going on last, last podcast of the year? Yeah, just some quick housekeeping so we don't forget at the end. But uh, listeners will see this this pod drop like a day earlier. So we usually record on Wednesdays. Today it's Tuesday um, because everyone is being very nice about accommodating my uh, holiday travel. And I am trying to avoid podcasting from Amtrak. Um, and then next week will also be a bit weird. We're planning to record Friday. So it'll be a, a couple days uh, past when we usually put them out. But then after that, you know, back to regularly scheduled programming. So that out of the way. Yeah, it's funny. That's a good way to put it, that we have these kind of comedic relief stories. And then we have this pretty deadly serious story. So so let's start with the January 6th report, and then we'll kind of get into the more fun stuff. But we had talked last pod about the timing of the report not being ideal for reasons kind of within or without the the committee's control 
but it was kind of you know, college kid writing their final essay vibes in these last few days, because, you know, we were all at work, you know, many of us kind of working from parents or in-laws houses, you know, and then the day slipped by hours pass and we're like, so where's the report? And, you know, at first we anticipated the report coming out the same day that Zelensky's surprise visit to the White House was going to happen. So some of us at TPM were kind of speculating maybe they'll push it because they're not going to want to step on, you know, this kind of diplomatic victory for Biden type thing. So they ended up, the committee released some transcripts the day of the Zelensky visit and then said, okay, we're going to punt the report until tomorrow. And basically all of those transcripts were people just pleading the fifth a million times. So it seems like they were just kind of trying to offload the boring stuff. Um, But then another day passes and the report doesn't come out. And then when it finally does come out, it drops at like 10, 11 p.m. a what, a day or two before Christmas Eve, like really pushing in on the holiday. And as you say, Josh, it was like, you know, 860 pages or something. So we just kind of have this brick, which, you know, I'm sure everyone remembers when the, you know, the Mueller report dropped and everyone was trying to read it really fast during the workday. And on cable news, you had like anchors talking while people are flipping through the pages. But I think this was more of a case of like, you know, we had our uh, Josh Kavinsky and, and John Light doing the that small hour laboring of sifting through the whole thing. But it does at least seem to me, and I'm curious what you think, Josh, it feels like it kind of, it didn't have huge ripples because of the timing or maybe because we just kind of know its core assertions before the report. But I'm almost left with the impression that like those public hearings in the summer, that was the crescendo for the committee. And this almost feels more like both tying up the loose ends and just kind of like dropping this packet off of the DOJ's doorstep and being like, here's what we had. Go nuts. Yeah. I mean, uh, as 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 we know, they are under kind of unique circumstances here since the other party, which is the one that did the insurrection, is about to take over the house. So they need to get it out the door before those guys take over. And they had the additional fact that they were doing some very consequential final legislation. Um, so all of these things were were happening at the same time. Um, and that's why it was delayed. I, I have not seen, I'm curious if you've seen anything specific about whether there were any kind of like, you know, last minute substantive decisions that were made or something like that. Presumably it was just kind of like, you know, some some final formatting and, 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 and stuff like that. So, so, That was the reason. I mean, I've seen different people sort of commenting on, oh, you know, this is the way to step on your story and no one's going to read it and blah, 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 blah. I, I don't. Basically, I don't think any of that matters. And 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 that's for for this reason. Um, when the Mueller report came out, we basically didn't know anything until it came out. We had inferred things uh, through the various, uh, you know the course of the trials and the pleadings and stuff like that. But we didn't we didn't really know anything. And as we remember, Bill Barr sort of jumped in to characterize it first um, with what was at best a highly disingenuous characterization uh, of the report. Um, and then the report itself uh, in real ways pulled its punches. And, and to the extent that it didn't pull its punches, 
it never really quite recovered from Bill Barr's initial gloss, which was basically saying, didn't find anything, all good, move along, nothing, you know, nothing to see here. In this case, uh, you know, there's in all of these, in all of these report type situations, you've got the sort of the headline gloss, and then you've got all the details. And in this case, we know the headline gloss. Trump's guilty. A bunch of people around Trump are guilty. Here's all the terrible stuff that happened. Uh, And that was, as you said, that was heavily previewed, explained, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, in the, uh, you know, in, in, in the hearings. So, in a way, yes, they 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 kind of jammed it up into Christmas Eve. But I think basically, who cares? We we know the verdict here, and um, I have no doubt that people are going to now, you know, dig into. I mean, it's eight hundred pages long. Uh, dig into, and we and other news organizations have done that to a limited extent so far. We did some, you know, kind of live blogging when it when it came out. Um, people will dig into that and get more details. But for public purposes, it's really the headline that is the big thing. And the headline is crystal clear. So I, I, I don't buy this idea that I've seen from a lot of commentators that, wow, you know, all this work and you kind of stepped on it and, you know, uh, released it, you know, metaphorically, if not literally last thing on a, on a, on a Friday night. So I basically think it kind of doesn't matter. They just, they, they just had a lot of stuff they had to get done. Uh, and, you know, and there it is. I also think in terms of the labor, perhaps what's going to end up being most valuable is, you know, wrenching free documents that people didn't want to give up and like getting those witness interviews and everything. Because we already know that, you know, kind of the parallel investigation that's going on at DOJ in many cases was following in the footsteps of the January 6th committee, you know, interviewing people who had already been interviewed by the committee and, and things like that. So I think... It's also a bit distinct from Mueller in terms of, like you say, the Mueller report was also our our first public impression. The January 6th committee has already done the public impression. So a lot of the value of this stuff is the heavy investigatory lifting, which we were only ever going to kind of get the the headlines of anyway, you know, because the people who are investigating are always going to be more in the weeds than the people reading about it. So, you know, I, I think that's a factor as well. Yeah, I think, you know, it kind of is what it is. I mean, I, I, I do think the it, it, it is it's not clear to me the extent to which the um, Department of Justice investigation has really been forced along by the committee. We just mm-hmm. don't know that it's possible, but we don't know that. Um, and there is at least uh, there is at least a some evidence that it has been, you know, that the DOJ investigation has been going on for a long time and we just didn't know about it because that's how federal investigations go. So that remains, uh, I think that remains just an, an unknown. Um, I do think, though, that if you look at the work of the January 6th committee, it, it's been incredibly influential and I think very powerful. It has, you know, it it's... It is hard often to see beyond the day-to-day pushback from Republicans and various commentators and so on and so forth. Oh, this this doesn't matter or that you didn't do it the right way and blah, 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 blah. But I think we look back and 
I think across a pretty broad swath of the American political spectrum, no, not the 20 to 30 percent hardcore Trumpers who supported the insurrection, but across a pretty big swath, there is a strong sense that something very bad happened here. It was not just a bunch of freaks who got up, you know, who, 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 um, you know, sort of lost their cool and, 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 and stormed the Capitol building. This was a very complex plot that was to do with these fake electors, with, you know, the whole different kind of thing. And, and what has been, you know, the, the connection that was very important to make and that the January 6th committee made is that that storming of the Capitol was specifically because they needed a little more time to have the fake electors thing work. So it all comes together. And I think in some ways we saw it in the results of the 2022 election. I think they did their job. And I think it's, I think they have been incredibly influential in shaping people's understanding of what happened on that, not just on that day, in some ways on that, you know, that day is just, is just the focal point. So I think they've been really successful. Yeah, I agree. And I also think why the hearings for me are the pinnacle of the committee's work versus the report is just they were so dramatically effective in their use of footage we hadn't seen before or even footage that we had. Um, But I think they did such a good job resurrecting kind of the horror that normal people felt on that day and making the misdeeds of Trump and his you know, those in his cahoots kind of seem so much worse because they would, you know, splice in, here's what we know about the fake elector scheme, this kind of like weird, arcane, confusing thing, and then splice that in with Mitt Romney having to turn around mid-hallway and run away from the mob, you know, or like the screams of police officers and stuff. So almost what they were investigating was just so built to be a, a visual medium, you know, that that I think was their moment of communicating with the public triumph. And now we're just, you know, and the, the written stuff is almost just a bit more like a bit more weedy, a bit more academic, a bit more, you got to sift through to kind of find the the dramatic moments because they did such a good job of tying those themes together in a way that was really easily digestible. And then I think did filter down to the quote unquote kind of normal populace in a way that written stuff just wouldn't have because so much of the, you know, social media and all the rest are just such video platforms that it just mm-hmm. worked really well for that. Yeah. And it's and a lot of that stuff is just a lot of the stuff in the report is there for the record. Right. Right. Because people can be pouring over this forever. Um, it's not done in this. Well, it may not be done in the sense of it could happen again, but it's not done in the sense that that it it seems inevitable to me that there will be federal prosecutions that go to this broader conspiracy and and sort of in the one of the one of the sort of the takeaways of the final hearings that i found more persuasive than i think i anticipated finding is that they set it up in such a way that you know i think they i think they made referrals against four people mm mm-hmm. Okay. And they also made sort of uh, referrals by implication to a lot more people. There were kind of headline people than kind of and everybody else involved. And if you, they basically just made a strong argument of 
if you're going to indict any of these people, how can you not indict Trump? Right. Because he's the one who did the whole thing. He's the one who came up with the idea. None of it would have happened without him. He he took the basic acts. So I come out of it really kind of thinking that he will be charged with 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 crimes here just because basically because I think they made an overwhelming case that there were sim- that that there were grave criminal acts that happened here and they made a very I mean how do you even call it a case I mean he did it I mean he's the center of it so I think for for uh, me, I always kind of assume, and I think this is in many, you know, often a correct assumption. Charging the president's pretty big deal. It is a big deal, and it's a, it is it is something that comes with a lot of very fateful consequences. It's not just well, president's not above the law. It's 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 always going to be more complicated than that. But once you establish that there was a seditious attempt to o- to overturn the results of an election and really overturn the constitutional order and that a lot of people committed crimes and the president was the ringleader just how do, how do you not go there are you really going to indict John Eastman and uh you know that that Chesbro guy and a few others and somehow like you don't indict Trump that it just it would be kind of absurd yeah and i think Jamie Raskin kind of you know, he made that point during that final hearing where he was like, this is not about going after the foot soldiers and exonerating the people who were, you know, commanding them into battle, basically. And I mean, I think you're right. The whole the overriding theme of the report is it's all about Trump. And we know from reports that they've shaved off bits of it that were more tangential to the Trump piece, which, you know, has angered some people related to the committee. But that was the driving purpose is to show that this man was culpable and, you know, to try their best to get him eliminated from contention and, and running again. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I agree with you because what are you, <laughs> you going to take out the the right hand men and then be like, I mean, what is even the what would be the possible argument for exonerating Trump? I mean, they just the report is full of so much, you know, direct evidence of his extensive involvement. I mean, calling up legislators. This was not a guy who was kind of working the puppet strings from above. He was, you know, getting his hands dirty. Very hands-on. Very yeah. hands-on. Yeah, no, absolutely. And 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 I think that um, another thing, I think this may have been Jamie Raskin who focused on this. There has been, and, and I think a lot of us have sort of in spite of ourselves been kind of lulled into if not believing this, at least kind of crediting it at some level, that with the top Trumpers, there's been this argument of, hey, you know, that violent stuff that happened on Capitol Hill, that's out of control. That's that's a crime. Hold those people to account. But we weren't doing anything violent. We're just filling out forms and, and, and you know, uh, making phone calls mm-hmm. and, and uh you know, uh, making uh, petitions before courts. Like, how, what, what, what? Do you, how, how can we be doing? We didn't do anything violent. So, how can you be saying we did anything wrong? And, you know, that that's not really a standard that applies in any kind of law or in any kind of coup. There are lots of bloodless coups, right? <laughs> it, it, it even goes a little bit beyond that. They have this way of kind of saying they create this kind of alternative um, legal universe where we just thought we could we could submit 
fake electors. And like, if we were wrong, like, okay, my bad. But like, that was just a kind of a good faith misunderstanding. Right. Like, it's not a crime, <laughs> you know. And and so I th- I think on both of those counts, uh, the you know foot soldiers versus ringleaders, violence versus not violent, you know. Uh, I think they did a pretty good, you know, a, a pr- pretty good shot of that. And I just one other point, and I and I think this is you know often things that are not completely logical have a a lot of bearing i think the stuff that trump got himself into with these with these uh you know classified documents at mar-a-lago have hurt him a lot in terms of criminal culpability on the january 6th stuff even though they're not really connected in any, in any way. I mean, you can say they're connected in the in the broader sense of his criminality or thinking he's above the law, but they're not, you know, meaningfully connected. But what he did there is 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 just clearly against the law. And I think he will be charged with that. I mean, I'm not sure, but like it's hard for me to see how he how he um how he won't be. And once you're kind of charging the president you know, in for a time, in for a do- dollar, right? <laughs> and I don't mean that in a, in a, in a um, I don't mean that in a trivializing sense. But once you, once you make the judgment that, notwithstanding the fact that this man was president, and notwithstanding the fact that that the president has a lot of, you know, prerogatives and judgment calls that constitutionally he can make which at least complicates a lot of the um uh, a lot of the function of the law once you decide man he just blew right through that he broke the law and like he's got to be charged then you look at it like we've already got a lawbreaker here you know we've kind of crossed that line so i do think that has has uh has has hurt him you know yeah. shouldn't be necessary but it has and in terms of the foot soldier piece, which I think we can kind of transition to you, uh, transition into another topic we want to talk about. This like cottage industry that sprung up after 2020 of the lawyers, the quote unquote expert witnesses who all kind of operate in these vaguely MAGA circles. And they, you know, they stake their name on trying to overturn first Trump's election. That's when where most of them kind of rose to the surface back when we were all like, who is this guy? And now it's just like the same people keep kind of cropping up in all of these cases. Um, you know, it does kind of, I think, add to the onus to not just nab Trump, but also to show that there are any repercussions for kind of using the court to this anti-democratic purpose. And it's funny because there's been such a straight line to the Carrie Lake ongoing circus from that effort. I mean, her her lawyers are Kurt Olson, who was, you know, kind of spearheaded a lot of the 2020 stuff for Trump, who came from like nowhere. And then in those graspy, desperate days of how do we overturn the election, he like crops up as this, you know, ideas guy. And he talks to Trump multiple times on January 6th. And then you've got Brian Blem, who is definitely the funnier figure of the two. But he kind of made his first name representing the the tech firm, the Cyber Ninjas after the Arizona, you know, quote, fraud it uh, type thing. 
But it, it is funny how it it has become this whole cottage industry. It's these like lawyers who often come from weird backgrounds, you know, like they'll use they used to be like divorce attorneys or whatever. And now they're just big lie guys. But right. they come with this cavalcade of, you know, these quote unquote experts who get on the stand and are like, I have 20 years of studying ballot chain custody and the procedures and all this kind of stuff. And it's just it's funny because I think the court doesn't quite know what to do with like self-professed experts, but they get up there and then you like do kind of Google searches while they're talking. And, oh, you know, they they went on Cleta Mitchell's podcast or he was a speaker at Mike Lindell's symposium. And it's these people who have just like a bare sprinkling of legitimacy somewhere in their resume that can then be like, and I am an expert in election security. And it's like, OK, well, you know. I'm an expert at the Harry Potter books, but like that doesn't make for a side hustle or a profession for me, you know, but you got those lawyers coming to Lake's thing and then they put these people up on the stand who they're this one woman who her big claim to fame is she knows all about ballot handling and she goes around and, and testifies on podcasts about like the grievous errors in how Americans handle our ballots and how it leaves us open to all kinds of fraud. And she like did all this stuff on the stand about that. And then the the county's lawyers get up there and they're like, have you ever worked as an election official? No. Have you ever been a legitimate part of an election? No. Have you even volunteered to be a poll watcher? No. You know, but this whole crop of people really gravitated to this big lie thing. And the fact that now post 2020, we've just got this crop of candidates who make their name on this, who run their campaign on 2020 being stolen and who then like Carrie Lake, as she she telegraphed ahead of time, if she lost her election, she was going to say it was because of fraud. Right. And now we're since our last recording, we talked about the two days of trial that were happening. So during the days of trial, you just had, you know, I did tri- I did mock trial in high school and I think I am like better versed in some of just the, the rudimentary procedural rules than than Carrie Lake's guys were. You know, there was like just multiple instances of absolute hullabaloo where they just didn't follow the basic rules of the court. And like at one point you have them trying to call a witness who they didn't put on the witness list ahead of time. So the defense was like, what? Who is this person? You know, you can't just you can't like spring things on people at trial, you know? And so that just sets off this feverish, like whispering session of the lakes lawyers to try to figure out who the heck to call instead. And the judge is just being like, what is going on? And then you have another time where they try to play this voicemail into evidence that they never like uploaded. Authenticated or yeah, definitely not. Yeah. yeah. But they never even uploaded. So, you know, the defense had never heard it before. And it was just or you had you would have uh, the defense object to something and then the judge, you know, they either sustain the objection or they they overrule it. And then you would have like lawyers trying to argue with the judge about how they how he ruled on the objection. And the judge had to be like, I, I'm not accustomed in my courtroom to having people fight with me about, you know, so it's just like the endless. Well, are endless these people like I mean, that. but but these people are at least lawyers, right? I mean, they may or at least you know, that they've been in divorce court or something. So it's not like, right. I mean, it's, I, you know, yeah, no, you are. Well, correct. Wasn't there, wasn't there something I, I, I thought I heard that there was actually, I mean, she tried to kind of play it off as sort of a joke in a way, but there was, um, uh, Carrie Lake made a statement where basically she was having a really hard time finding any lawyers. Mm-hmm. 
because all of the lawyers were like, I don't want to get disbarred, like, or I don't want to get fired from my firm. And, and, and um, they were, you know, they were treating this about, you know, the deep state and, and blah, 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 blah. But that does kind of go to show that the post, um, you know, post big lie proper, you know, bar discipline activities have had an effect that people have seen that people who would be, um, you know, ideologically down for this have seen that and say, I don't want to get disbarred. I don't want to lose my right to, to practice law. So sorry. And, and at least from what, from what uh, Lake was saying, that was having an effect. Yeah, which is where we are now. So on Christmas Eve, um, the judge dismissed the last two claims of her lawsuit, which were basically premised on the idea that these ballot printing machines malfunctioned and people didn't get their votes tabulated because of that. And then these other claims that the ballot chain of custody was broken and that somehow tons of illegal votes were like plugged in. Um, And they were, I mean, everything they presented was just so speculative, you know, or it'll be some kind of like techno technological malfunction, right? Like some maybe something with these printers did happen. But then you would have the actual election people testify that, okay, when that happens, there's a remedy, right? You have that vote replicated on a ballot that is formatted correctly and can be counted. But so you had Lakes people up there being like, the printers are broken and there were long lines. Ergo, there I were 40,000 votes for Lake that were not counted, right? Well, wasn't there, I think the judge had a statement where he said he summarized the Lake attorney's argument basically being, you know, you're asking me to invalidate hundreds of thousands of votes that were cast, and you were asking me to include tens of thousands of votes that were never cast and presumably count them for you. Because well, because yeah. why? <laughs> I mean, Lake wasn't even just asking for a new election. Her primary ask was to be declared the winner of the election. I mean, ridiculous. But so he he dismissed the last two claims. And, and was this a, was a state court judge, right? Yeah, this is yeah. Maricopa County Superior Court. And he is a very mild man- mannered guy, this judge. He was like initially appointed by a, a fairly Trumpy governor. Um, but... You know, I thought the the dismissal was like very kind of well reasoned. He went by she he went through her witnesses one by one to kind of explain why this is not evidence. You know, why why people's speculation is not enough to like overthrow an election. Um, and then he also gave a few days if the county and Katie Hobbs's team want to file sanctions against Lake's team, which ties into what you were saying. Um, and they, the county and Hobbs have both individually filed for sanctions. They they want them against Lake's lawyers, but also Lake herself. Um, and I do think that's something, like you say, that has come post-January 6th, in part just because people who are on the other side of these big lie cases, I think are just kind of becoming better accustomed to what you do in this situation. Because this idea of kind of flooding the courts with these frivolous big lie lawsuits was, you know, fairly novel in in the aftermath of the 2020 election. Like you would have in some states, they would say, you know, we haven't had lawsuits over elections barring cases where there's like a five vote differential, right, you know, right, in, in right. decades or whatever. Um, so you've got, you know, the, the Maricopa County people are just kind of asking more modestly to cover the, the attorney fees for the two days of trial. And Katie Hobbs people are being like, nope, we want $500,000 to cover all this stuff. And then meanwhile, you, of course, Carrie Lake, 
not going to exit the money train, which is this, you know, fight for my election type thing. Also, retweeted a conspiracy theory that Mark Elias, who's, you know, kind of the the big wig Democrats election lawyer, he that he and other lefty lawyers ghost wrote the judge's opinion that they emailed this judge and told him what to say. And um, I mean, that's the, not the a way county, to ingratiate yourself with the judge. Right. Exactly. To put it mildly. And so the county included that in their motion for sanction. And Carrie Lake has since deleted the tweet. So it's just such a mess. And of course, she's also already vowed that she'll, you know, appeal the decision because once again, and you know, this is obvious, but these cases are so clearly not about or not just about overturning the election, right? Like that's almost a happy bonus if that were to happen. But this means she gets to fundraise off this stuff. She gets to like go on right wing media and yell about it and have other people in the right wing media say, you know, all I want for Christmas is a Carrie Lake victory. You know, it's just it's such a good way to keep her yeah, central. She's like a martyr. A yeah, martyr, even basically. while she's not running for anything. It's just. Although I would yeah. say I would say this, though, it is. In many ways, the the sort of the story of the 2022 election is that she's really the odd woman out mm-hmm. because you just saw all these other people say, well, guess I lost. I'm sure sad I lost. Maybe I can run again someday and not lose. You know, I mean, basically no one did this. You know, or very, very few people did this. Um, and uh, even people who lost by narrower margins, right? And so she's kind of, um, uh, you, you know, kind of out there on her own and just out, her, out there on her own. She's, the, she's kind of the only high profile one who decided to, to play this card. And uh, that is telling and telling in a, you know, in, a, in a good way in itself. I mean, in, in some ways, you know, I don't know how much this played into it, but certainly I think, I mean, I, know she, I, I think it's pretty clear she was expecting to win. And a lot of people were expecting her to win. I was expecting her to win. Just that's kind of what the polls showed. She had been, I'm not saying I was I, I was sure she was going to win, but I think the polls had shown, you know, her up a point, two or three points over Katie Hobbs. And there was also this general sense that Katie Hobbs had not run a great campaign, largely because she refused to debate Carrie Lake. I mean, she's, you know, I don't know. I don't know if it's if it's that she really did run a great campaign and people didn't, you know, kind of understand her strategy or see how well she was doing or if she just ran a lackluster campaign but people saw that Carrie Lake was bonkers and she lost. I mean, I've you know, I have no idea. At some level you've got to kind of say, you know, the the proof of the pudding is in the eating. She won, so you can't, you know, can't have been that bad a campaign. Um but it it is it is good in as much as you know she is the uh, you know she's the example that's sort of you know the exception that proves the rule for 2022. You know, got Mehmet Oz, you got uh, Herschel Walker. Uh, um, you know, even even I mean, pr- probably a little harder to do for Blake Masters since what he he lost by like ten points or something like that. Um, but she's kind of the only one, and and that has made her, uh, that has made her challenge sort of even a little more ridiculous than it might have been, a little less menacing than it might have been, and I and I think you can see, 
at some level, and this is something we're going to have to talk about a lot more in, in, in future pods, that there are elements in the Republican Party that, that want to move on from this. I'm not saying they're above stealing an election, but they don't, but they're not crazy about these kind of like absurd situations where you've got like, you know, Rudy with, with the Kraken and stuff like that. In any case. So, yeah. So yeah. that's that. I mean, also, though, shows how hard she's working to stay in Trump's good graces, you know, and how just vociferously she is thirsting for the vice presidential nod. I mean, all of this is clearly driving in that direction because she's making herself you know, the only way to kind of not be a loser in Trump's eyes is to dedicate yourself mind, body and soul to saying his election was stolen. And now mine was too, because of the same thing that robbed him. You know, she's still kind of maintaining her utter, utter fealty to him. Yeah. Which yeah. weirdly, even while she's kind of becoming so poisonous to to much of the party and losing in the most like loud attention grabby way possible, she's also clearly keeping herself in contention for, you know, being on the ticket of the presumed 2024 front runner. Yeah. And 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 also, um, well, I guess, what is it? I, <laughs> I'm used to Georgia and Arizona having like two, two senatorial elections, like every single cycle. I guess that's right. I guess we're past that now. Um, you know, cons- it's very hard right now to see how you get there, but we don't know what happens in two years. It's 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 certainly possible that that things go in a weird direction, and maybe she runs for Kirsten Cinema's seat. I mean, who knows, right? There's lots of uh, lots of potential options, but there you go. So let's round off the show with uh, the newest dispatches from the talented Mr. Santos. I think last we spoke of him, uh, we knew we had all this resume stuff that was. You know, the New York Times piece had come out proving that basically everything was made up and that he makes, you know, even outlandish claims outside of the fact that he didn't seem to graduate from where he said he graduated from or work where he said he worked from. But also, you know, that he's had employers that were employees that were murdered. That didn't seem to be true. And then we also had kind of some inklings of the weird stuff going on in Brazil, his home country. And since we last talked... Well, I guess we should say that's that that itself is a question. Right. OK. It's, it's, <laughs> it's the country of his background. Right. He says he was born born in Queens, and he may well have been born in Queens. It's one of these things where, you know, in the normal course of events, if someone says, I was born in Queens, you say, okay, cool, right? <laughs> you don't, you don't like, you know, this sort of, it's what Republicans do demanding right. birth certificates and stuff. But when everything else is a lie, you start you you kind of need to ask, and uh, at least some of his former co-workers say that he used to tell them he's born in Brazil. So like you, it's at least worth, you know, it, it's, it's not like, um, it's, it's not like it requires any big investigation. There's a birth certificate over in some hospital in Queens somewhere. Just look it up and it's easy enough to prove. But anyway, go ahead. Right. So, so since that time, there's been kind of an explosion of developments in this story. He had tweeted, you know, truth will out and I will tell the truth, you know, some like weird amount of time from this like next week or something, which is like, yeah, that that sounds like you are going to just neatly rebut this if it takes you a week to get your house in order. And he had given an exclusive interview to the New York Post. Is that That's right. And then we kind of had a uh, orbiting pieces come out looking at these different angles and everything. So give us a reader's digest of where we are now versus where we are, you know, last pod. All right. So you start off, as Kate said, that he that that really everything in his bio 
work history, uh, educational history, uh, just sort of random event history, everything falls. Uh, and that's what kind of got the ball rolling. Um, in addition to that, you have things that, I mean, there's, there's, <laughs> there's no law against going on the campaign trail and saying, yeah, I used to own Goldman Sachs. I, like, you know, I mean, <laughs> that's up to the voters, right? If they want to, if they want to be taken in by that. Um, but then there were also questions about his like financial disclosures, uh, campaign disclosures. Those are things that like, if you lie on those, that's a, that's a big felony. That's like a, that's a big deal. So there's been the totally made up biography. And then there are a number of things that potentially could be serious criminal offenses that could get him in a lot of legal trouble. Um, and, and then on the, you know, beyond things about where he worked and stuff like that, like one thing, sometimes he said he was Catholic and other times he said he was Jewish. And not to be too cheeky, but for that district, kind of makes sense. You know, in Queens, you will be Catholic, and uh, up on the North Shore, maybe you'd be Jewish, right? You know, cover all cover all your bases. Um, and the Jewish thing was added to by the fact that he had this kind of story about his family being. Uh, escaped the Holocaust and stuff. It's one thing to say you're Jewish when you're not, but don't bring the Holocaust. You know, don't don't bring in sort of stolen valor about about the Holocaust in it. In any case, one of the one of the things when he supposedly came clean finally was he said I mean he actually said this. He said, I didn't mean I was Jewish, I mean I was Jewish. Which I mean like, dude, come on, one. I saw that singular quote. Yeah. Absolutely everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and also he said that, you know, one of his things was that he was an executive at Goldman Sachs and at Citibank, you know, a senior vice president, all this kind of stuff. Well, he wasn't. And when he tried to explain this, he said, well, it was a poor choice of words. I never worked directly for Citi or Goldman, but my company did business with Citi and Goldman. And you're sort of like, yeah, that's a very poor choice of words. Since since the words you use were lying about, like 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 you know, this isn't like six degrees of Kevin Bacon by like investment banks. Like you worked there or you didn't, dude. So, in any case, you got all the lies. Um, so he so he and he said uh, maybe Christmas Eve, like you know, questions have been raised. I'm gonna. I have a story to tell. And next week, I'm gonna tell my story. So hold tight. Merry Christmas, peeps, and all, and all, and all that. So he did this this interview with uh, the New York Post, obviously about as friendly a venue as he could find. Um, and the Post first put out a very limited, a very short piece, which wasn't protecting him exactly, but was kind of being as generous as he could, given the 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 sort of the unclimbable mountain of ridiculous lies. Like, what are you going to say? What is your story possibly going to be? Like, are you going into lie rehab or something or like, or what? Um, but in any case, so he said the thing about like poor choice of words for his education. The, the one thing he kind of just like directly copped to is like, yeah, I didn't graduate from Brew College. In fact, I didn't graduate anywhere. Sorry. I swear to God, though, my impression when I read that is that the only reason he copped to it is because you could almost sense he thought there might be some political upside in being like, yeah, I'm not a college elite, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm just a, I'm just a dude. Basically, I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah. And along with being being Jewish and being this and, and, and being that. So here's here. I did a post this morning and I, and I think this is where this is going, because, you know, his overall response to the completely fake resume um, is basically, um, 
you know, lol, whatever, sorry, move on next, you know, kind of like who, you know, sort of like who cares. Um, but here's where the kind of the rubber meets the road. He, there are, I mentioned before, there are real questions about whether he falsified his financial disclosure documents. If that's true, that's a big deal. You go to jail for that. Okay. So that, that's where it, it, it becomes, it becomes more real. The other thing is, so he is gay. And he says he's married to a man now. Even that is sort of whether they're married or not. I mean, you know, kind of doesn't matter that much whether they're whether they're legally married. Um, but this was a big part of his campaign bio because basically his whole thing was, I am openly gay. I'm so gay. I'm 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 gay twenty four seven, and this has never been a problem for me in ten years in the Republican Party. So all this stuff about uh, Republicans being, um, you know, non inclusive—that's all uh, Democratic propaganda. Blah 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 blah. So what comes out pretty pretty soon is, in fact until a couple months before he ran the first time in 2020, he was married to a woman. Now, I think as we know, uh, there are certain people who are, who are bisexual. There are certain people who were in the closet and then they, you know, uh, sort of came out of the closet. Because, so a lot of potential scenarios there. Um, but without going into all the details there's at least a decent amount of circumstantial evidence that that was a sham marriage for the for the for the purpose of getting that woman a green card and allowing her to become a citizen so if that's the case that is another big time crime marriage fraud for the purposes of citizenship you go to jail for i mean it's a big deal crime so again another potential crime and i'm not just it and you know kind of like we you can say anybody could have done anything but these are things where there's there's not proof but there's a significant amount of circumstantial evidence there's no evidence he ever cohabited with this woman um it seems like he was dating men through the time they were married um again People have got all sorts of lifestyles. Who knows? But you know, kind of, kind of uh, points in that direction. That, and if that's true, that's a big deal. Then there's the fact that when he was 19, he was living in Brazil with his mom. His mom was working as a home health aide, and this this is like another weird thing. Part of his bio was that his mom was the first uh, executive at a major investment bank. His mom was a home health aide and a, a, a cleaning woman. God, which, he has quite an investment bank hang-up in particular. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and again, that's totally honorable work. But again, the guy's kind of a pathological liar, right? Um, so in any case, there in, in Rio de Janeiro, she's working as a home health aide. He steals checks from one of the elderly men under her care and goes and buys a bunch of clothes and shoes and whatever. Uh, he gets caught. And the, the, um, the story of how he gets caught is a little bizarre and weird and funny in itself. Basically, he, he takes the checks. He goes to the store, buys a bunch of stuff. The clerk pretty quickly... After, the, after he buys his stuff, it's like, something's weird here. So he calls the phone numbers on the checks. They don't go anywhere. So he's like, ah, oh, you know, I got, I got bamboozled. And then the clerk has to pay back the store, which that's a little rough. I don't know how, I guess that's how things roll in Brazil or in that store or whatever. But so he's kind of pissed. Then George gives a pair of shoes he bought in this little caper to his boyfriend. Okay. 
little little more little more evidence at least verifying that that he's not making up being gay because this is you know uh 14 years ago something like that he's 19 years old so but he doesn't tell the boyfriend that he stole them so a couple days later the boyfriend goes back to the store like hey i want to exchange the shoes and he gets the same clerk and the clerk's like wait a second these are the shoes that other dude Pass the bad checks for. So he processes, you know, I don't know, exchanges them or whatever. And then he follows the boyfriend. Turns out the boyfriend works at a store nearby. In any case, this allows him to find the boyfriend on social media. And then he finds, uh, I, think that, I think that George said he was Delio, who's the old man, the 80-something-year-old man. Finds Delio on the social network, but he's George Santos. So anyway, so that's how he gets caught. He gets charged and then he bails. So basically, George is a fugitive from justice uh, in Brazil. You know, relatively small crime. I think this was maybe hundreds of dollars or maybe a few thousands of dollars. But still, all this kind of stuff. And then the last thing is... Can I just quickly interject that this clerk is absolutely in the wrong line of work? Totally. He needs to open himself up a little PI shop or something. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, no, totally, totally, totally. And um, and he actually did an interview interview in one of the big uh, Brazilian papers that I used when I I wrote up that story. In any case, the final thing is, is is George Santos a citizen of of the United States. And again, normally you kind of take people's word for that. Um, but again, there are former co-workers who say he was born in Brazil, not in Queens. Obviously, he could have been born in Brazil and be naturalized, totally possible, but it's one or the other, right? And kind of like you want to kind of nail that down. Um, ironically, the best evidence that Santos is a citizen is that it seems like he was involved in immigration fraud with the sham marriage, right? So that so this felony, this potential felony, may be his best his his sort of ace in the hole for eligibility to serve in Congress. Because obviously, if this woman, if he married this woman to get her a green card, he would have to be a citizen, or else why would you do it, right? So in any case, there's that is kind of where we are. That um, this guy has a totally made up bio. He sort of kind of come clean now by saying, lol, nothing matters. And I kind of worked at City in the sense of like, I went to a Citibank branch one time, you know, that a bunch of nonsense. But then we have a number of things that potentially could be crimes, which in which case it, 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 um, it accelerates pretty quickly. And then uh, the final thing is, what is interesting about this is that remember, uh, Republicans have a five-seat majority in the House. So they really need, Kevin McCarthy really needs that vote. So Kevin McCarthy at least really needs George Santos to get sworn in. I guess it's on the first, of, they swear them in on the first of January. And I think the, uh, I think the leadership ele- or the, the speaker election is on the third. So he, so he needs Santos because that's a, it's a it's basically a democratic district. So if he resigns there's a special election, odds are he probably gets replaced by a democrat. So that is admittedly lengthy the full the story of George Santos or the true meaning of George Santos as of as of as of this morning. Yeah, and the upshot afternoon. being that like there's virtually no chance he's going anywhere because of his political value just means I mean, can you imagine even one more we're going to find out about this guy when you lie about 
every single thing in your life, there's that's a lot of stuff to untap, you know? I think we're going to be talking about him giving. for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah like, no, not- totally. Well, there's even, you know, there's even, even <laughs> this gives you a sense of how many bad things there are. That one of the things is during his, oh, I didn't even mention that between 2000, when he was kind of, I don't know, he made $50,000 in a year, he had no assets. Now he has like $11 million in assets and makes about a million dollars a year. So like, okay, guess you had a pretty good two years, right? Things really kind of came together for you. Um, He says it's all about this company he has, but that company doesn't really seem to exist. So that's a whole other that is a whole other thing. Wait, well, <laughs> I even lost. Oh, also during this period, the golden two years, he worked for a company that the SEC seized all its assets because it's a Ponzi scheme. That's impressive. Now, in, in the legal filings, he has not come up with one of the as one of the bad guys. And he's kind of said, hey, you know, you never know who you're working for. It caught me off guard. Which, okay, maybe, you know, they didn't charge him with anything. But that kind of shows you that kind of that those are his good th- those are the good parts of his resume. That he unknowingly was part of a Ponzi scheme that the SEC like seized all of its assets. Uh and on that note, and I guess that's a wrap for 2022. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, going well, you know, I, I will say that a number of people is on a more serious note, a number of people have asked, does this mean he's not eligible. He was too late for the Golden Dukes for 2022. In fact, the eligibility for 2022 had already closed. So so Santos will be eligible for the Dukes in 2023. I know a lot of people had a question about that, but that's the that is how that is that is resolved. So, you know, and and it seems a little question that this um this story will mainly be a 2023 story because it's not going anywhere. It's just a question of how long he he, you know, remains in Congress or remains at large, basically. I don't know, maybe flee to Brazil, right? Because I think I, I found out that they, they don't have an extradition treaty. So, you know, that may come in handy for George Santos. Man. There you go. All right. Okay. Well, uh, remember that the Josh Marshall podcast brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off uh, using the promo code TPM at Grady'sColdBrew.com. And yeah, I guess that's 2022, the Josh yeah, Marshall podcast. Yeah, we'll see you guys next year. Remember, our uh, our episode next week will come a couple days later than expected, but it will be there to fortify you going into the new year. Yeah, fret not. It will be there. <laughs> The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen. 